Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get it seen. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Hey everybody, welcome to Behind the Slate. I'm your host Aaron Strand. Today is August 1st, at least when I'm recording this it's August 1st. I'll probably release it a few days later. And that means that we are now in the month when we will start shooting our feature film, uh, Withdrawal, which begins production on August 29th. So we are really into um, the final countdown here. And despite providing all these uh, wonderful interviews with some of the uh, cast and with crew members that will be um, upcoming. I realized and have been very aware that over the last few weeks, I haven't upheld my promise, which is that I was going to take you in a step-by-step behind-the-scenes look at uh, making this film. And so I wanted to hop on here and just do a, a little solo bit in talking about what we've been up to for the last several weeks in getting this production mounted. Um, there's been a lot going on. And so I wanted to try to walk through that. This is totally off the cuff, by the way. You know, this will not be as as planned as some of my other episodes. So a bit of an experiment, but we will see how it goes. Um, we have had to put together everything. Um, when I last, you know, everything that I have talked about thus far has been about sort of like bringing the idea together and how did we get the inspiration for this and going through the casting process. Well, once all that is sort of more or less done, you know, we've, we've really got to start putting the pieces together to actually shoot a film. And that starts with the crew. The first member of this crew and the first person that was brought onto this project is a man named Jonathan Walls. Um, he is serving as the producer uh, for the film. And I just need to start off at the top. Uh, Jonathan Walls has been incredible. This film would not be happening without him. I mean, I, I it certainly would not be happening in the way that it's happening. It would certainly not be happening with the level of competency and with the incredible people that have been brought on board without him. Uh, Jonathan Walls has gone above and beyond what a producer, you know, what I would ever hope from a producer, you know, I, I was expecting to single-handedly drag this corpse um, of a movie across the finish line. And, you know, I met Jonathan Walls um, uh, early on in this process, pitched him the idea. He jumped on board and he just attacked the work with a relentless attitude, a relentless spirit um, and passion. And I am so grateful for this. Um, he has been instrumental in bringing together our crew and um, has, I mean, he's, listen, this guy has done everything. He has given creative feedback on the script, on choices that are being made. Um, he has, he has budgeted the entire movie. He has um, scoured Atlanta looking for our crew members and he has followed uh you know my intentions um and honored them film is this incredible work environment because you basically come together with this small group of people and there's a very definite 
start and end to this time that you're going to be working together. So it's very intense and it has this pressure of an end date looming over everyone. And you have to come together as a community within this finite period of time. And it's incredibly difficult to do. And if you talk to any crew member who works in film and television, they will most likely regale you with horror stories of the pressure and the rudeness and the strain of what it takes to work on a film production. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. In this pressure cooker of an environment where you not only have the pressure of the time limit, but you also have the pressure of the fact that you only have this one chance to capture the sights and sounds that will eventually become the movie. Um, it can also be uh, one of the most beautiful experiences in the world. You can really come together as a sort of um, surrogate family for this time being and um, midwife your little baby project into being. And to do that, you have to, I, I, I mean, I, honestly, I don't know really how to do that. I've had some incredible luck with uh, the people that I've worked with in the past, but I, I would like to try to be a little bit more systematic in the approach. And so for this film, it was really important to me that I wanted to cast the crew. I wanted to attract people who um, philosophically were aligned with the values of the project, who were willing to embrace the independent spirit um, of the idea. Um, and it was very reassuring to have these. Um, ideas echoed by our previous guests, uh, Noam Kroll and Evan McNary. Um, and I wanted to also honor them in the sense that, you know, look, like it can, as a filmmaker, it can be very easy to be obsessed with your movie. It's all about your movie and your idea. And you forget that everyone who's walking onto the set, you know, has their own life. And this project is just one little stepping stone on their path. And so you hope that instead of just a stepping stone in the wrong direction of where they think their path is headed or where they want their path to be headed, or even just a, a, a lateral move, um, you know, hopefully this stepping stone is actually the next step up on a stairwell and that this project can serve them in some way to get them to the heights that they're trying to achieve. But in order to get a real grasp of what it is that people want to achieve, you know, I think you've got to sit down with them. You've got to talk with them. You've got to find out why it is that they're doing this. What is their why? Um, why are they, why are they in this crazy business? Um, and what do they hope to get out of it? And maybe this film can be in alignment with those goals. Um, and this is not, uh, the quickest way to, fill out your crew. <laughs> um, it's actually incredibly time intensive. And all this goes back to Jonathan because Jonathan has um, has done an amazing job of finding people, setting up meetings, going with me, and we sit down and talk to people and get to know them and, and, and try to find that alignment and try to see what it is that uh, uh, people want. And we've talked to some incredible people, some incredibly talented, uh, passionate artists and for whatever reason, you know, it, it like maybe this just wasn't the right project to work on. Um, and those decisions have been really hard. Um, but that's the intention that we've set out with of trying to uh, put our crew together. When all is said and done, I think we will have 10 people on set. It'll be a 10-person crew, including me and including Jonathan. 
Um, and so that's, that's not that many people. We're going to have to rely on each other. We're going to have to count on each other and we're going to have to work together for 13 days total. Um, and, uh, and try to bring this little story to life. So, um, it's been, I've never gone about it like this, to be honest with you. I've usually just, I just look for people and take the first opportunity. You kind of trust the universe that like, if they put this person in front of me, then it was meant to be. And with this one, we tried to go a little bit extra mile, um, and try to find that alignment. And, and hopefully this is, you know, like feeding back into those like initial principles that I set up for the project, especially in terms of respect. You know, we want to respect the audience's time, but we also want to respect the crew's time. And for a project like this, where inherently like we cannot pay what people are worth, what I would love to be able to pay them. Um, and we are asking people to, you know, come work for a lower day rate or maybe less than their standard day rate, I feel like you've got to make up for that value somehow. Um, and how do you do that? Well, I think the approach that I'm trying to take is that you make up for that value in um, respecting their time and also trying to compensate in terms of meaning. Because that is something that not every film production can offer. A lot of uh, big TV projects and and um, and films, you know, studio films. It's it's very much a, a job, and it's a kind of a pain in the ass job too. You got to wake up really early. You got to work long hours. You got to get treated like shit, and um, it is not necessarily meaningful. You might get a slight um, sort of uh, you know exclusivity cred of oh I worked on this big budget project or whatever. Um, you get, you see your name at the end of the credits of a, of a movie on a, on a big screen. And that's, that's really cool. But is that necessarily the meaning that I'm talking about? Um, I don't know. You know, I I would like to believe that everyone gets into this business because they're an artist and I want to provide an opportunity where people can actually feel like the artists that they are. Um, so this is what we've brought to, to the crewing up process. And, and Jonathan has just been instrumental in in arranging all of that. Uh, he's jumped down in the trenches and and really hustled. Um, so just let it be known here and now that this guy has been absolutely incredible. So here we sit, August 1st, and we are just about crewed up. I think we've filled out just about every position. I'm incredibly, incredibly excited. Um, I've started to have nightmares about <laughs> the shoot. Um semi nightmares, you know, maybe you could just call them dreams. Um, but what's really interesting is that in my dreams, I'm actually starting to uh, imagine these individuals like on the set in my dream version of the movie. Um, and so I, I, I'm picturing them all there. Um, and which is really cool, you know, and I'll just take that as my, my subconscious is rehearsing for, uh, whatever, uh, situations may come. Um, during the filming process. Now, as this has been going on, we've been uh, continuing with our rehearsals. Um, the rehearsals have been uh, really helpful. Uh, we have, I have really shaped the story based off the rehearsals. Um, I would say probably three quarters of the material that we rehearsed um, starting a few months ago uh, with Brent and Millie, who you now know from the interviews, 
I'd say probably a quarter of the, of the initial material we rehearsed has been thrown out, has been cut, um, because in the rehearsal process, we've been able to refine what it is that we're actually doing. Um, one of the things that Jonathan did early on was he said, hey, listen, I know you have this whole dream about, you know, uh, of improvisation and empowering the actors, and I want that to totally be the case, he says, but you know, for the cast, for the crew, we really need a shooting script, dude. <laughs> we need a formatted shooting script. And at that time, I only had like a 25 page treatment. And so I said, all right, fine. Um, and of course, he was totally right. And the great irony is, is that I look, I'm a writer, I love to write. And so once I started writing the script, it, um, it was incredibly exciting, and I and I got to uh, synthesize a lot of the rehearsal work and a lot of the thing. And now that there was people, actual flesh and blood humans involved, I got to start imagining them doing the things that the characters were doing, and I could hear it in their voices. And the script just took off. And so now, um, as we were rehearsing, I ended up dra- going through two drafts of a script. Um, and so we have the script in hand. And, you know, I want to try to uh, wear it like a loose shirt is is the idea. Um, for rehearsals, I often don't tell the actors what we're going to be working on until the day of. Uh, they show up and I hand them pages of the script. And I do that because I just want to talk through the beats of the script. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really care about the words. They usually will come up with something better on their own. And... So I'll hand them the the script and then they start to fumble their way through the beats. And by doing that, you can really find out very quickly where the connective tissue between scenes either isn't working or isn't strong enough. Um, you know, you might have a scene where someone say, you know, is talking about um, something of like, oh, hey, like we've, you know, in order to get in order to get to the doctor's office, like we've got to do X, Y, Z. And then they'll say something you know, about uh, a memory or, or a backstory. And these are oftentimes the, the moments of internal connective tissue that need to be worked on and developed as an actor. And by stumbling through things and by just getting on your feet and working through it and not overthinking it, you can find those areas where that connective tissue like really needs to be built. Um, you can also find where you as a writer were just wrong or lazy or you wrote something that just didn't work um and you use the actors and their 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 memories as a sort of trial by fire for what did or did not work and so that has been incredibly incredibly helpful and it gives me so much confidence um going into the shoots at the end of august and september as a reminder i think i've said this on an earlier episode but we have two shoot periods for this film we are going to be shooting the flashback sequences from august 29th to september 2nd and then we are going to be shooting the main storyline sequence from oh october 27th through november 7th or so so we have this kind of break uh which i think will really help us to get our feet and so for this august september shoot period we have five days and we currently have uh, 25 pages of script that we need to shoot. So five pages a day uh, is totally manageable. And that is the other really assuring thing about this process is you could begin to step back and say, okay, this all feels incredibly overwhelming. Uh, we're bringing this group of people together. There are unknowns and, and fears and, and you know, our budget is small. 
but five pages in five days, I think we can do that. I think we can do that and not work everybody into the ground and and treat people with uh with treat people well. Um so so that has been um uh, a really interesting journey as well the way that the the actors and the rehearsals have had a direct influence on the script. Um I've alluded to this uh for the minutes up until now but you know I want to talk a little bit about um some of the things that I've been dealing with on the mental side. Um you know, I think it was really help, it was really nice to talk to Noam Kroll and Evan McNary on the previous podcasts because you know they both kind of echoed a sentiment of to to make an independent film is a borderline crazy thing to do. Um, you know, look like all the all the work that I'm doing and all of this, like I'm not getting a paycheck for it. You know, I'm the one who's putting up the money for other people's paychecks, um, and. Uh, so that's it. That puts a an incredible degree of financial um, strain uh, on my mind, at least, and it's honestly a credit to my wife um, for making that all possible. Could not do it without her and without her support. Um, and uh, anyway, so this is a crazy thing to do. <laughs> it's a crazy thing to do with your life, and the things that have you know that I've been dealing with is the anxiety, um, thinking about what might go wrong, the work, um, just told the amount of things that just need to be done before we get to set or that ideally would be done before we get to set is absolutely massive. I'm booked up every single day from the second I wake up till, uh, about, uh, 12 o'clock at night doing things. Um, you know, while also, you know, trying to show up for my family, making sure to pick up my kid from daycare, doing all that stuff. It's, it's really hard. Um, I have a pretty high degree of imposter syndrome. I've been um, in making this podcast and in reaching out to people um, with some name, you know, some who are who are more well known than me. Huge imposter syndrome around the film, um, feeling like who am I to be doing this? Uh, you know, who am I to be reaching out to these people? Oh, they're going to see through me. They're going to see that I'm an amateur. Or something, you know, so, all this sort of stuff that goes through your head. Um, I have fears about the film itself. You know, what if, what if this thing, what if this story that I think is pretty good, you know, what if it turns out being cliche? What if it turns out being pretentious? What if it turns out in being um, obsolete? You know, it's a big, I want to honor what's really happening in the world today, uh, particularly in America and particularly with the opioid epidemic. And yet the opioid epidemic is changing so rapidly and it's just getting worse and worse. It's just unimaginably bad. Um, you know, will my, will this film be out of date by the time it comes out? I have, uh, fears about being a good leader. I have fears about, uh, being a good communicator. I have fe- all sorts of, of fears. I, and I don't mean to like beat a dead horse. I say this because it's very easy to talk somebody through what it means to make a feature film while hiding behind a mask of confidence. And look, at the end of the day, of course, I, I am confident. I have sat down now with dozens and dozens of people and pitched them on this movie and told them why that I'm doing this and why I think it's important and how I would love for them to be a part of it. Um, so it's not that I'm, you know, 
stumbling all over myself or retreating into a corner. But to say that I didn't feel these things would just be dishonest. Um, to say that I felt, I, to say I didn't have uh, doubts and fears and insecurities and 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 just, you know, um, the scaries would be would be ridiculous. And it's very real. And for anyone else who's out there trying to make a piece of art, make a piece of art that is both uh, personal and um, hoping to touch others, and you hope that through that power that it might also have a little commercial viability, um, even in a very niche setting, but something to the sense that where other people would deem it valuable enough to buy a ticket um, because that is part of the deal um, to put yourself out there in that way uh, is incredibly vulnerable and it's hard. <laughs> um, and so every day has been sort of uh, a struggle of, of being seized with moments of panic and terror and, and hope. And, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a roller coaster and I want to just, really thank um my wife shub number one who has listened to me talk for hours um she has been a sounding board for ideas she has been a sounding board for complaints she has been a sounding board for all this shit um and she has sat and listened to it and given incredible advice um and incredible strength um you know uh and she's my number one that i go to uh, for this kind of help. But I will say that in addition to her, because she also has a life, <laughs> a life of her own. Um, she's not just there to, uh, to serve me and my insecurities, nor do I want her to be. Um, the other thing that has really helped is reaching out to other people and reaching out to other people who, who know more about this than I do, or who have done this before. Um, you know, part of the reason why I'm having uh, Gnome Kroll and Evan McNary and the, a whole bunch of independent artists coming up in these podcasts, and some of them are from like totally different mediums than film, but it's to try to get some sense of how do you do this? How do you put one foot in front of the other um, in this industry and in this business uh, of just art where there is no set path? Um, how do you stay motivated? How do you stay level-headed? How do you not become prey to your own emotional um, instability? How do you how do you develop a talent for your talent? Um, and uh, that has been incredibly helpful to me. When I am at my most sort of my heart is racing and I'm and I'm uh, experiencing that kind of fear reaching out to somebody else and asking, hey, and just saying, hey, this is what I'm going through right now. This is what I'm experiencing. Maybe I don't, sometimes I don't go to quite to the degree of like, hey man, like I'm actually like, my heart is palpitating right now. Uh, but um, at the very least I say, hey, here's the situation. I know that you have experience with this. Um, what would you do? Um, do you have any advice for me? Um, that is the thing that without fail, uh, relieves what I'm feeling because I think really that most of those feelings are about feeling alone. I think it's mostly about feeling alone and isolated. And despite the myth of, you know, the auteur director, um, uh, 
boldly going into uh <laughs> i don't fucking know uh, the auteur director you know doing things all on their own it's just such bullshit i mean i've already talked about the community that um a film set creates uh it's incredibly important but it's also about your broader community and network um trying to you know make real connections with people um that have done this before and being willing to get vulnerable with them and asking them for help when you need it. Um, it's taken me 30 years to actually do that. And that's probably a big reason why it's been 30 years, 34 years in August um, before I've made a feature film. Now, I wanted to also talk a little bit about just some of the things that I've been thinking about because I don't know if you've noticed, but the film industry is a little nuts right now. Obviously, we are, I say we because we are all part of a film community. Uh, and yet, as a non-union member, I don't want to be misleading or, or misspeak to say that um, uh, I'm 100% affected by what's going on. Um, but the film industry is basically totally fucked, um, to put it lightly. And I am pretty conflicted by what is going on. Um, the AMPTP has systematically dismantled and destroyed the distribution cycle that sustained this industry for uh, 100 years. Well, at least for 70 years. Um, once upon a time, about in the 90s and the early 2000s, a film lived an entire distribution life. They went from first-run theaters to second-run theaters to airplanes and hotels to premium cable to basic cable and to home video in some type of order. And every step along that cycle was an opportunity for the studio to sell the film, which was, of course, limited in its exposure due to a physical medium. You, you know, you, in order to show the film, you had to have a copy of it on video or, or Laserdisc or, or, or film stock, whatever. And every opportunity was a time to make a sale. And what the actors union and what most of the other major unions fought for was that they were entitled to a piece of that sale at each stop along the distribution chain. And this is what led to actor residuals. Now, there's been a lot of talk about AI and the threat of AI to the film industry and that the, the actors union SAG is SAG-AFTRA is on the forefront of this fight against AI. But I think that the AI conversation is a little bit overstated. Um, I think that the threat of AI to the writer's room is very real, um, at least to cutting down the number of writers that movies and TVs expect to have. Um, and I think that AI is a very serious threat to background actors, which is definitely getting discussed. Um, but I think the fantasy that people would actually watch, you know, uh, season 13 or I don't even, uh, you know, some extra season of the Golden Girls with an AI generated script and AI generated versions of B. Arthur, um, I think are overstated and frankly ridiculous because that sounds like a gimmick to me. And historically, audiences are quite fickle and they get sick of gimmicks rather quickly. 
I don't think AI is the real threat. What this strike is about, and what every strike of actors for the past 80 years has been about, is money, and particularly money in the form of residuals. Now, I talked about residuals as money derived from every step along that distribution chain. Well, the AMPTP came in, and with the hope of streaming and technology, they dismantled this distribution chain. They sold it out, and they have now, now there are no stops along the train. And in fact, their attempts to get movies out of theaters and directly onto streaming, and they are doing this because they want to try to attract customers to their individual streaming sites, right? Disney is pulling its movies out of theaters because it wants to bring customers to Disney Plus because they want to have a market share of the streaming market. And once they lock in that market share, they can then jack up the price. This is their strategy. And the strategy is failing. These streaming companies are hemorrhaging money because it's actually very hard to run and manage a streaming site. They're all unprofitable. Um, and not only are they unprofitable in and of themselves, but they are destroying the lifeblood of Hollywood by getting rid of the multi-stop distribution cycle. So what they have done is absolutely criminal. And what these executives have done to their own business model, they have destroyed their own business model for an illusion is uh, is grounds that they should never work in entertainment again, frankly. Now, on the other side of it, I think the actors' union is being disingenuous with their own constituency. They are telling their actors that they should stop work, they should go out, they should pick it, because they're going to fight for the money that they've earned. They're going to fight for the money that these actors have deserved. And they couch it in language of, well, you know, Bob Iger, the head of Disney, uh, he makes this much money, and we're, we're entitled to a piece of it. And while they're not wrong in that they are uh, not being honest about the scale of the problem, I think, and they are not being honest about the current state of the, of the entertainment industry, which is that it is bloated. There are too many people and there's not enough money to go around. And that means that someone's got to pay the price to make up the difference. They are selling their actors on an idea of a pay per stream option under the guise that um, actors in successful TV shows will get future residuals commiserate with the popularity of their TV show. Well, we already know what the system looks like. It's called Spotify. And talk to any artist on Spotify not named Taylor Swift, and they will tell you what that money distribution model looks like. They're getting a fraction of a cent. A fraction of a fraction of a cent. See, there's two things that we need to admit and accept about the internet. The internet gives us this incredible accessibility where we can put out a piece of art and it can reach anybody in the world. But it also creates an essential problem of scalability in that 
in order to be profitable with a zero cost distribution model, you have to have incredible scale. And to have incredible scale, you need to have incredible resources to get your message out there and get it above the din of other noise. And this is why the internet has created a situation where the rich get richer and the poor fight for less. We've watched it happen to print media. We've watched it happen to music. The only reason it's happening to the film industry now is because internet bandwidth took 20 years for film streaming to become a viable medium. And you'd think that the execs of the film industry would look at what had happened to music and print media and see, oh shit, this is coming for us. But for some reason, they thought they were better than that. Their egos and their greed for infinite scalability got in the way. And so they raised all this venture capital to try to uh, uh, to make you know a ton of shows, the content boom of the 2010s, all those shows that were greenlit and made and, and were all an attempt to bring in customers to their streaming empire and lock them in, uh, just as with Uber, uh, just as with all the other sort of big tech ventures, um, it has not worked out the way that they had hoped. And the company, at the end of the day, is barely profitable or not profitable. And actors are going to be left much like the middling artist on Spotify, making a, a fraction of a cent compared to what uh, those artists once made selling CDs and selling records. Now, musicians, they have, you know, the, at least they actually have alternate options. They can tour. They can, you know, make merch. Uh, but primarily, they can, they can rely on live performance. Actors, film and TV actors, do not have the same benefit. They are completely tied and completely dependent upon the distribution system. So, what do we do about this? And I, this is the question that I ask myself consistently, and I think a lot of people are asking themselves consistently right now. The distribution model that the AMPTP has tried to force upon us and sell us is not working, and I don't think it will ever, ever work. And the reason why is because as simple economics, it will never, never work. The reason why it doesn't work is because streaming is completely dependent on scalability. Scalability demands that your movie must be available at all times to the maximum number of people. But the thing that actually made your movie valuable was scarcity. Once upon a time, you thought you were paying $20 for a VHS copy of Beauty and the Beast. You thought you were paying for Beauty and the Beast. That is not true. You were paying for the plastic VHS cassette and the magnetic tape inside of it that contained Beauty and the Beast. It's the same thing with records. Once upon a time, you thought you were paying for the Beatles' music. No, you were paying for the wax that the music was pressed upon because you could not get it anywhere else. It was temporally and materially contained onto an object. And the internet has destroyed this. This zero-cost distribution system. 
what we as a film community have to do is take control of that uh, uh, of that aspect of distribution again. Now we're never going to put the the genie back in the bottle when it comes to the physical um, uh, the physical means of of holding a film. We can make you know going to see Oppenheimer in seventy millimeter IMAX uh, an event, um, and I think that that's really really cool. We can have a you know cinephiles can have a DVD culture where we want to retain control of the physical medium of a film. But I don't think that will ever have mass appeal. I think the internet has destroyed that for forever. But what we can control is access and the time of access to a given film and to try to imbue films with value uh, that they once had. You know, people used to go to the theater to see a movie because it was only while the theater had the print of that movie could you ever see that movie. And then after it was gone, you might never see that movie again. It might never come back to your town. The print of that film might never come back to your town. And we've got to take control of this intentionally. Um, how does that happen? What does that look like? I, I don't know. I don't think that um, the subscription-based streaming model... Um, will ever really work, uh, particularly on the independent level. I mean, I think that the work that um, some of the independent streaming services are doing, like Criterion Channel and Mubi, and their work in curating uh, streaming art films is is really great. And they often use a, um, a limited time engagement where the a certain movie is only available on their service for a month, and it forces you, to, it gets you to want to go see it. I think that that's a, a Maybe that's a possibility, but I think on the independent level, um, uh, there are still undiscovered ways to, uh, to take control of this. Anyway, all this started by talking about the strikes, and I have gone off on a rant to basically just say that um, this industry is in serious, serious trouble. But as has already been documented and spoken about at length, uh, the reason why this is exciting is because every time the film industry has been in trouble and has been, quote unquote, you know, melting down, it has usually led to the best films. The new American cinema of the late 60s and early 70s, which, of course, kicked off with Bonnie and Clyde and gave us filmmakers like Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this is all because. The movie industry was in absolute turmoil, uh, mostly because of television. When people get desperate and what they think are sure things stop working, such as in the 60s when westerns and musicals stopped working, they start to let people do something different. Could it be that we are in an era where people are going to get desperate and realize that superheroes stop working? It's possible. I hope so. Um, but this is an incredible time to be uh, a filmmaker, but also a really incredible time to be making a film. It is uh, somewhat cynical um, because people are out of work right now. And I have tons of friends who are out of work, and it breaks my heart. It really, really does. Um, I also can't help but reflect on the timing of 
being making of making an independent film right now and looking towards the next film the next year of releases and films that you know could be potentially delayed um or put on hold in terms of their release date and feel that we have an opportunity on our hands to possibly be in a position to uh be shown in places that we otherwise wouldn't be um because they would be filled up with the usual industry fare. Um, it's possible. Uh, look, none of that matters if we, if we don't make a good film. Um, but I'd be lying if I, if I said it didn't cross my mind from time to time. Um, I think that's, you know, look, can I predict what the future holds? Absolutely not. Could all, could this just all be a big nothing burger? Absolutely. I think it just speaks back to the, the idea of being ready. You want to be ready uh, to move forward on your projects and to not wait. Um, I've learned a long time ago that if an idea floats across your brain for a movie, that means that that same movie idea is floating across the brain of maybe 200, maybe a thousand other people at that exact moment. I truly believe this by the way. And so if you don't act on that idea and start putting it in motion, at the very least, you know, write it down on a piece of paper. Um, someone else is going to. And so I feel uh, just incredibly grateful to be in a position where we're about to go into production um, later this month, uh, where we are not dependent upon the unions and where we might be able to make a movie in a year when Hollywood's production is... Um, at a limited capacity. Um, the other thought that I've had in relationship to the strikes as it applies to this film is that perhaps there's an opportunity, uh, another opportunity at hand, which is that there are a lot of actors, um, name actors, who are not working right now. So I have been exploring options of, of if we can partner with SAG, and get an interim agreement to uh, produce the film with SAG actors. Because we have no association and are not tied to the AMPTP. And if we can explore the possibility of making this a SAG project and potentially hiring a name actor, which um, you know can do incredible things for your distribution cycle. And I've had somewhat some qualms about this because you know this is something that you explore with every... Um, uh, you know, this is always an option for you whenever you're making independent work. Uh, bringing on a name actor will brings an immediate credibility and increases your chance of getting distribution. Um, at first, I was opposed to it. And you can go back to my principles episode where I talked about the um, the importance of not playing the game and not trying to level up this film unnecessarily to stay true to its its content. Um and and to be honest, I still feel I still question am I you know is, by exploring this am I betraying that principle? However, I do think that the we made sure that we got our ducks in a row first. The nuts and bolts of this project are sound. The crew is uh, together and excellent, and we are crossing our T's and dotting our I's. And the world has presented us with this potential opportunity. And 
I think that we would it would be a disservice to all the people who have come onto this project as as just a as the person who's leading the charge here. I would be doing a disservice to all those people who are counting on me to do everything in my power to make this film successful to not explore this option. Um, does that mean necessarily that I'm playing the game in in a way that I said I wouldn't? Um, possibly, but I'm going to try to stick to my principles and. Um, you know, hopefully those principles are something that, you know, other artists, uh, vibe with. Um, I hope that, you know, that maybe we'll find just another artist that, um, just like we've done with this crew, you know, could see this project as a stepping stone on their own journey. And, you know, maybe that artist happens to be someone who's a bit more known in the public sphere. Um, uh, that's not going to, you know, really change the way that we go about things, except that we're, you know, we're going to honor those people um, and the uh, requirements to hire them. Um, so, you know, I don't know how that will turn out, um, but that is uh, something that we're working on and exploring. And we are, uh, we have applied to, to SAG to see if we can um, uh, work with them on an interim agreement. And, um, so yeah, that is uh, that's all I can think of, honestly, as far as what we're working on uh, with this film. Uh, I'm just filled with uh, I'm in, I'm filled with anxiety and gratitude, and I wouldn't want it to be any other way. I'm deeply grateful for all of you for listening um, and going along this journey with us. And if you have any questions, you can always email me behind the slate pod at gmail.com behind the slate pod at gmail.com. If you've made an independent feature and you have advice, I'd love to hear it. If you are thinking of making an independent feature and you have questions, if you have your own anxieties, reach out to me. I'll be here. I want to talk to you. I want to help you in the way that others have helped me. Uh, you can always follow us on Instagram at Behind the Slate Pod and at TikTok at Behind the Slate Pod. You can follow the film in particular on Instagram at Withdrawal Film. And until next time, that is a wrap. Play that thing now with a blouse. Come on up that little out at the hall. Keep going, keep going.